Friday, which was great. Weddings are, are the best, aren't they? They're so good. And um, then uh, yesterday, um, well, actually on Friday night, I had my sister's kids down from the Sunshine Coast because they were going to go to the football with us yesterday. And, um, and we took my six-year-old boy to footy to play in the morning. Um, and I was kind of already thinking of preaching today. There's a fair bit going on. Uh, I watched from behind the goals where I was doing flag duty as he went a little too fast and hard into a tackle and, um, and smacked his head. And uh, the other kid involved got up crying and, and Iggy didn't get up and if you know Iggy that's, that's a worry because <laughs> sometimes I wish he'd stay down but he doesn't um, and he was eventually brought up and sort of taken a bit groggily off, off the field um, but he was, he sort of said dad I can't see, it's too bright um, so he had that light perception thing that happens with concussion so we took him to the doctor with all the cousins which was fun, um, and they gave him the all clear. Uh, aside from having, uh, I've been teasing him about the doctor uh, saying that he does have a pea-sized brain, um, but it seemed like that was already the case before the head collision, to which he responded, Dad, I think that's genetic. So uh, it seems still to be working upstairs for him. And, um, and then... Uh, we did do this thing that seemed crazy at the time where there was nine of us that went into, into the Gabba last night and uh, something special, I think Charlie opened the door for us to talk about the Lions and it's nearly September. Uh, something special has been going on with the Brisbane Lions this season. Uh, we took my parents to their first game a couple weekends ago and they had a great time and I thought what would be awesome is if we could go and see Geelong uh, and against all odds, they could beat Geelong. So, yeah, a bunch of us went in, and uh, and as I was in the crowd, I was thinking, it's going to really be horrible if we lose this game after, you know, spending all day out and um, all the sort of, you know organisation that's involved. And you'll know if you watch the game that... And I realise I'm in mixed company, so I'm trying to do this with as, you know, much sort of holding back for the Cats fans in our midst. Uh, Brisbane trailed the whole way through, basically, till halfway through the fourth quarter. We were three goals behind. We just started to peg them back. Uh, Brisbane just wouldn't lie down, even though they weren't playing that great. And um, 90 seconds from the siren... uh, a player who was playing with the Cats last year had sort of injury troubles and, and Geelong felt that he was a bit surplus to their needs, who's been playing for the Lions, climbs up his marker's back, takes this amazing specky right in front of the goals and, um, and puts Brisbane ahead. And there was 36,000 people in the Gabba going absolutely nuts. Uh, we couldn't hear the siren when it, when it blew. That's how noisy... It was. Um, and um, it, it was a, a bit of a profane uh, 
reminder to me of where we'd been. Graham's right, football doesn't really matter. But sometimes it can point us to things that do, like lots of things that don't really matter in our lives or seem not to. They can point us to things that do. And um, last week we were talking about Abram and how he uh, had to be reminded about the promises that God had made him. And... um, One of the things that came out of that passage, and uh, it's up on the website if, you, if you'd like to go back and listen to it, because I think it's a really encouraging passage, is that by believing again, having hope again in the promises that God had made him, that he would make him into a great nation, um, he was actually set right with God. It was like when he dared to believe what God had promised for him, He stepped into the reality that God was desiring for him, drawing him to. And it was even more unlikely than uh, the lowly Brisbane Lions beating the mighty Geelong Cats, wasn't it? Because Abraham was in his 90s. Uh, His wife was old. They shouldn't have been able to have children. And yet they did. And we finished last week by looking at a passage which has been picked up again in the readings this morning and Sharon's mentioned. Hebrews 11, there's a lot of text on the screen there, so I don't feel like you have to uh, read it all. I can read it for you. It says, All these people were still living by faith, so Abram and Sarah included there. When they died, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking about the country that they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, and this is so wonderful, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This passage is speaking to us about the nature of faith and faithfulness. The faithful, those who are faithful to God, full of faith, their lives point to this better country that God is preparing for them and for anyone who would follow his call to pilgrimage there. And the the fuel, the stuff that, that gets us there um, is hope, right? So God gives us hope that whatever our circumstances may be, whatever our challenges might be, however dire things might look in this world, however racked by sin, marred by death, life might seem, this world might seem... When we hope in the promises of God to bring all that to an end, to bring peace, justice and joy, we actually draw that better land towards us. We point people towards it and so it comes closer to us. I love the highlighted bit at the bottom there. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called the God of those who would believe the promises that he has made them. When we believe the promises, when we have hope 
in what God has told us he will do, he is, he's happy to identify himself with us. We are faithful people. He considers us his people. We bring that great country, that country that we hope about, our true home, closer. We're going to have a look at this theme again this morning by turning to one of the passages from the readings uh, in the lectionary. So there's a bit of reprieve for us at the moment from our, our theme for the year, which is exile. Though, as with last week, um, you, you might see some kind of exile strands here. But if you could turn in your Bibles or on, in your phones, however you access the Scripture, to Isaiah chapter 5, and the beginning of Isaiah chapter 5, we're going to read through Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Now, Isaiah uh, thus far in the book has been doing what prophets do, which is very often bringing a, a message of warning and judgment to the people. And the people um, have been responding, it would seem, as people very often respond to a prophet, uh, because it's not a welcome message. Uh, he's warning Jerusalem and Judah about the, the potential judgment of God upon them. And we see here at the beginning of chapter 5 that he sort of changes tack, and maybe it's an indication of the fact that people aren't listening to his message. And so he gets a bit creative here and he sort of tells a story that's a poem. Um, I will sing for the one I love, Isaiah says as he starts this story, a song about his vineyard. Uh, I'm not sure what your translation says, it might say, beloved, the one I love. It's potentially confusing because the person whom Isaiah is talking about here is a, an, another man. It's a, there's a masculine identity to this. So it's almost as if he's saying, I once had a friend, um, but he's doing it in poetic language. And my friend, my loved one, in verse 1, had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. <clears throat> now, um, to Hebrew ears... Uh, there's a motif here that they would recognise from, from romantic poetry. And it might seem a little uh, strange to us. I'm not sure if it's entirely politically correct in our moment. But the vineyard is uh, a picture of a woman. So Isaiah's saying, I had this friend who had a, a woman that he was interested in, a girl that he was in love with who was like a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, Isaiah goes on telling the story in poetry or song. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it. And then um, the love story takes a bit of a turn. He says, then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So this is a love story gone wrong, actually. Isaiah's friend does everything that he can 
for the object of his affection, uh, this, this woman. He invests in her, he gives her everything that she could need, um, but if she was a vineyard, she was not fruitful in the way that a good love story would have us look for fruit. Only bad fruit was yielded there, Isaiah says. Um, and at the beginning of verse 3, you'll notice some speech marks. So here is Isaiah's friend, the beloved, the, the, the male in this love story, beginning to speak. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than what I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did the vineyard fruit only bad grapes? Um, the translation here, it could actually be talking about like weeds or poisonous berries. It's not necessarily grapes. Why only bad grapes? What more could Isaiah's beloved have done? And he goes on, Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. That's a picture there of uh, a vineyard in Sonoma County, California, um, after some fires uh, went through. And you can find uh, a heap of images on the internet of, of this event where these vineyards were laid waste. And if you know uh, anything about Sonoma County, it's probably the most famous wine region in the United States. So we've got a very kind of contemporary, visceral picture of what it looks like for prime wine-growing land to, to be wasted like this. And if we pick up here at verse 7, um, the writing shifts again and we read the prophet Isaiah beginning to give an explanation or interpretation of the passage that we've just looked at. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is God's people. The nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines that he delighted in. And he looked for, and um, having looked at the Hebrew, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of license uh, here, sort of unpacking some of the terms. He looked for, your, your translations might say justice, uh, a more direct uh, sort of translation of the Hebrew is the exercise, the right exercise of authority. So that is justice, right? Uh, where authority is, is used wisely, is used fairly. He looked for the right exercise of authority, which is justice, but there saw blood pouring out. He looked for faithfulness or righteousness, and if you cast your mind back to last week, they're, they're largely interchangeable terms, actually. He looked for faithfulness and righteousness. 
But there were heard cries of distress. So Isaiah is interpreting the poem, the song, and he's saying, this is the key. The vineyard is God's people. God is my beloved. And so what we're reading here is Isaiah saying that God, as he looks at his people, those who he has blessed, he's given them a land, he's given them a hope, he's given them a new identity, he's blessed them, he's looking for justice, the right exercise of authority, but instead he sees bloodshed. He's looking for faithfulness, for righteousness. If we go back to Genesis 12, the story of Abram or Hebrews 11, he's looking for people who live lives that point to his hope. People who bring that far country that God intends for us nearer because they live lives inspired by hope that point to God, that speak of his love. He's looking for that. But instead he hears cries of distress. I don't know how effective Abraham's getting creative was to kind of bring God's people back into his warning. But if we're compelled at all by this, if we track with this, this song, poem that's telling us that God's people are the vineyard in this story, it might be rather sobering for us, as I'd imagine it should have been for the people that Isaiah first wrote to. Or spoke to. Because um, the vineyard is producing bad fruit. God's people are producing bad fruit in this passage. And it should beg the question for us then, well, how should we produce good fruit? Are we being who we're supposed to be? If we are God's people, if we are faithful people, living lives that grasp onto the hope of the promises that he has given us and pointing our lives at that hope, at that country that he would draw people to. Are we doing that? The people in this poem were not. And I think Isaiah speaks to part of the challenge of this in the way that he writes this passage. While we're going about the business of our lives, when it's business as usual, um, is it true that we can operate in a way that's not always reflective about the details of our life? We can miss sort of subtle signs that things in our life are taking on a dimension that we didn't intend. If you've ever been a gardener, you'll know how quickly a tended garden can begin to fill with weeds. You'll know if the weather changes, that it can dry out, and that in a matter of days, actually, a beautiful garden can begin to point back the other way and become uh, something on the way to a barren wasteland. And our lives are like that. I think that's why Scripture so often goes to these kind of agricultural images, because... There's a sensibility to them. There's a way that we can relate our lives to gardening, to farming, if you think about Jesus' parables. And it's often just little things that are evidences 
of the fact that the garden's not being properly tended. Little things that are evidences of the fact that the lives that we should be pointing towards hope are beginning to go slightly off course. Isaiah points to this uh, with some wordplay here. So he says, And he looked for the right exercise of authority. He looked for justice, which in Hebrew is mishpat, but there he saw um, blood. It sort of it, it talks about pouring blood, but it's just the word blood, which is mispar. He said he looked, that is God, the beloved in this story, looked for faithfulness or righteousness, tzedakah, but there... He saw cries or heard cries of distress, se'aka. They're they're really similar sounding words. And so Isaiah's kind of going, look, it's possible to get these things confused, but we don't want to get them confused because they're very different things. These are not small mistakes, which mean the vineyard isn't being tended properly. They might be subtle, but they're significant. God is saying to his people through Isaiah here, you're not being who I've called you to be. So this term idea that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, righteousness, faithfulness, the Hebrew there being tzedakah. You'll remember that Last week we talked about one contemporary translator using this kind of clunky phrase uh, to, to describe what's going on in this term, righteousness or faithfulness. To be righteous or faithful is to be set right with God. So to be faithful is to be... Uh, the, the quality of faithfulness is a kind of set right with godness. Clunky but effective. So you'll remember um, Hebrews talking about Genesis 12. Abraham believed and it was credited to him, credited to him as faithfulness. And we talked last week about the qualities of this set right with godness. What does it look like when we are set right with God? Well, Hebrews talked about uh, there being a real relationship. So God and Abram entering into a relationship that was defining for the both of them for the rest of Abram's life. Um, It wasn't merely a business relationship. But it was kind of a family relationship where Abram, uh, God said to Abram, you will be my people, I will be your God. And it's a real relationship out of which God is outworking his saving plan. So in the case of Abram, he's saying, I will make your descendants into a nation and that nation will be involved in the salvation of the world, my plan to save the world. The technical term that we touched on last week was this idea of covenant. So instead of it just being a matter of God saying, I'll do these things for you, Abram, if you do 
these things for me, like business partners. It's almost like a family relationship, like God saying, I don't want to just pay you as a day labourer to work in my vineyard. You're a part of the family now. This is a part of your inheritance. So the work that you do in the vineyard is the work that, that, that feeds back to you as well. It's not a work that you're doing for me. It's a work that I'm inviting you into for us to do together. It's your inheritance. You're part of my family. You're adopted sons and daughters. The second thing that we looked at that came out of Hebrews was that coming out of this set right with Godness is a sense of new identity. Remember how we talked about how God speaks reality into existence. So way back in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light and there's light. In Genesis um, 15, where we were last week, God says, actually, your name now will be Abraham because you are going to be the father of many nations. So Abraham meaning the father of many nations. God is doing like a Genesis creation bit on Abram. He's saying the nothingness, the barrenness of your life past is gone. I'm bringing you into new creation. I'm I'm giving you a new identity. And so when God's people as workers in the vineyard are set right with him, they are living into that new identity as children of God, as inheritors of the vineyard in which they work. And then finally, we talked last week about how there was real reward actually as a part of being set right with God, that that country that God calls us to comes near, that the fruit begins to blossom and to bloom. So three things that are happening when we're set right with God. We become inheritors of his vineyard and so we work in a different way, right? We're working together for mutual ends. We become trues and sons and daughters with a new, new identity under God and the fruitfulness takes on an increased significance and begins to come into our lives. When um, I was 18, uh, Ben Hart, who I think is teaching children's church, uh, the former chair of the board here, and Don Bass's son and I, we went and spent some time in South Africa. And one of the best things that we did was take a train trip. I I think train is the best way to travel. Um, I've done it a few times, and if I could go everywhere by train, I probably would. Um, But uh, we took this train trip from Johannesburg, which is up the top of South Africa in the middle, all the way down to the south coast to Cape Town. And the geography of of South Africa is that um, the central part of it's kind of up on a high plain, really elevated. And so you go through the desert on the way out of Johannesburg. But as you get closer to the coast, you begin to sort of wind down off the plateau to the coastline. You go through this really stunning country that's sometimes called the Cape 
wine lands. And it looks a bit like this. So there's these crags <coughs> and beautiful vineyards um, at the base of them. And um, they, they make really good wine there. It's not as famous as uh, Sonoma County, but they make wonderful <coughs> wine there. And I was thinking about that journey and thinking about how picturesque uh, trips through wine regions are. Uh, I haven't... Has anyone been to the Barossa? Is it particularly picturesque? Yeah, good. Yeah, I'll have to go there sometime. But thinking about the difference that there must be between going past a vineyard as a sightseer or a tourist and actually owning a vineyard. There's nothing wrong with driving past a vineyard and taking in its beauty. But I would imagine what's going on in the country, what's going on with the weather, what's going on in the economy, the nation more broadly, all sort of filters into what's happening with those vines in a different way when they're yours, right? I mean, I don't know terrible uh, amount about viticulture and so I don't think I've ever seen a vineyard bar the one in that picture that I showed before where I've been able to look at it and go well that's in trouble they all just look beautiful to me but I've had enough to do with farming to know that there can be those subtle signs you know (laughs) those confusing terms that Isaiah was using where if you're not onto it it can all go like that I mean, with wine particularly, even just picking the fruit at exactly the right moment can be the difference between a good crop and a bad crop. Not reading when that really hard frost was going to come and not getting it in early enough. Maybe leaving it slightly too long so that the sun just over-ripens the fruit. Very marginal degrees of difference. And as I thought about this, how I've been someone who's appreciated the beauty of vineyards over the fence, but never someone who has owned them, whose whose livelihood, whose identity has been in that land and in those vines. I thought about what it means to be God's people. The picture of the vine yard as a picture of God's people and you know I guess I'm a kind of professional Christian so I read the news with an eye for what's going on in the church and the way that the church is interacting with the world how God's people are doing and I notice this thing that happens in my heart where I look at where the fence is And there's many mornings reading the news where I kind of am looking to get a leg over the fence out of the vineyard and just walk along the road um, as an innocent bystander, as a tourist, just pretending that I don't know that that thing there isn't actually justice. That's blood. (laughs) That, That thing there isn't actually righteousness, but that's a cry for help that seems to be going 
ignored by God's people. And so I can do this thing when it's convenient, where I kind of go, they say they're God's people, right? But they're not God's people in the way that I know we should be God's people. So I'm just going to come over here and be God's person by myself, (laughs) right? (laughs) Just drive through, looking at the mountaintops. A little too convenient, isn't it? There's nothing really in this story about the vineyard. I mean, why would you want to be anywhere else, right? If God's saying, let me make you a son and daughter and give you work to do, that is the most significant work that you can be doing. A work that's going to be fruitful for eternity. A work that is going to be producing fine wine and beautiful grapes that will be set on the table, you know, at the feast to end all feasts, where there is finally peace, where there is finally justice. It's the only game in town. (laughs) It's the only game in town. And so, as challenging a thought as it is to kind of think, things aren't going so great in the vineyard, I don't know how this is going to go, there's really no option. (laughs) It's the vineyard or Nick's, really. So, I want to hear Isaiah's call to us this morning to grapple with the difficult identity that God is calling us to, that he wants to give us, the very important work that he wants to do through us. And I might get the band up. Because what are the options really. I don't know if it is a little profane at this moment, but I was thinking about how last night it was totally worth it going to the Gabba. Um, There was a risk involved that we could be riding home very disappointed and I know, uh, God bless uh, those of us in the midst who were going home a little bit disappointed. I know of people even getting on planes to go back to Victoria a little bit disappointed last night. But the reward was at the other side of the risk that was involved in taking five little kids out of the house on a Saturday afternoon for five hours. A very, uh, a very profane sign uh, that I want this morning to point us to the fact that there is risk involved in being part of the kingdom of God. There is there's risk involved in saying, "This is my land." and I can't walk away from it. But the Christian hope is a hope of life 
snatched out of the jaws of death. So much more than victory snatched out of the jaws of defeat by a last minute mark, but life itself snatched out of the jaws of death. And it starts all the way back in Genesis 1, where God says, I'm going to speak the most beautiful, mystifying everything into existence out of nothing. Abraham and Sarah, out of your old, dying bodies, I'm going to bring a nation that will point to my everlasting kingdom. Out of a dark, cold tomb that held the dead, dead, dead body of God's Son came the first fruit of all of the new creation. Generations of people that will live with purpose Peace and justice set right with God for eternity, including you. Would you stand? We're going to sing. But as we do... Think about the fence around the vineyard. And decide where is your inheritance going to be. Father God, life is up. Life is tricky. Sometimes it's hard being your people, it's definitely hard at times identifying with some of the stuff that your people have done and are doing. But reveal your hope to us, we pray. Help us to see that far off land in our minds again this morning. Help us to believe your promises. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the